Welcome to Fetch Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome at this episode of Fabs Talks. I am here with uh, Dr. Kirsten Hutte. She is uh, an associate at the Alan Turning Institute, an academic visitor uh, at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford. My name is Gerard Oosterwijk. I'm the digital policy analyst at, uh, at Fabs, And we're going to talk today about uh, climate mainstreaming. Uh, it's a series of uh, reports that uh, Fabs did about uh, breaking the silos really looking at climate policy from different angles, looking at other policy fields where climate is relevant and to see uh, where they interact. So today we're going to talk about climate and digital policy. And I, uh, I hope you will be interested because uh, it's a very interesting study. But maybe before we start, uh, Kirsten, can, you can introduce yourself a bit more than, uh, than just the title, the long title. Yeah, thanks very much for this very kind introduction. Um, so yeah, as you correctly mentioned, I'm currently working as a postdoctoral researcher at the um, Alan Turing Institute which is the National Institute for Artificial Intelligence Research and Data Science in the United Kingdom. Um, but I'm also affiliated with the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford. And in my research, I've done a lot of research on technological change. And in part particular, I looked on technological change in the context of climate change, asking the question of how we can accelerate the transition to green technologies and uh, to make it easier to change. Um, but I've also done some research on automation technologies and artificial intelligence and working a lot with very large data sets and different tools of data science. Yeah, because the thing is, so we, it's, it's very Euro speak and in the European bubble, we always talk about the twin transition. Uh, so both the digital transition that's happening and the climate transition, uh, it's it's a bit of euro speak, but yeah, it, they they are they are there. They are both there, and they are interacting, and that's also why I think your your study is very very relevant. So you you made a, a policy brief. Would you be able to to introduce a bit this policy brief and and where did you find this interaction between climate and digital? Yeah, so twin transition is a very good word to describe the whole process of change that is going on. So the digital transition and the climate transition are the big processes of change of our time and um, both are happening and it would be economically, socially and also personally very foolish to, to ignore what's happening and therefore smart policy needs a way of of how to react to these uh, to these processes of change happening and for both transition there's a lot of scope to shape the way of how the transition is going on so for digitalization we often say that digital technologies are like general purpose technologies and a bit like a self-driving process of change so that the transition is really speeding up but there's still a lot of how we can shape which types of algorithms are developed, how we deal with data privacy, how we enable firms and businesses to participate in this process of change. And also, yeah, of course, to, to preserve privacy of the citizens. Whereas climate change is in some way different. So for a long time, I would say many people try to ignore the problem and just to take a little bit of action. But since climate change is accelerating and getting so since the numbers um, are changing faster than we do, um, we definitely need political governance to accelerate the transition. And um, this is where both processes happening and they're happening at the same time. And it would be also a, a bit foolish not to, to take 
account of this simultaneous process of change and to search for scope where we can maximize the synergies between these two processes. I think so what you mentioned about the tech policy yeah, and the, and the tech technological change as a as a as a self-driving force yeah, so it's it's not really planned while we are dealing with climate change with targets and goals that are being set but not really met yeah, so that's another <laughs> problem but at least there's a lot of political action a lot of political control while we see that at least in Europe there has been a lot of legislation on digital policy uh, of, of of recent But in general, like it's happening and it's happening by itself. Well, climate change is happening by itself, but climate change policy is really about setting targets. Yeah. Um, so we can hope that fighting climate change is now also getting more and more a process which is driven by the market, but it's by far not sufficient. And whenever we think about how digitalization and, and climate change policy interact, we should at least think about principles of not mutually causing harm. So digitalization that would undermine our climate change mitigation or adaptation goals um, is a digitalization process that we should not or that we should try to avoid, whereas mm. climate change may also have negative impacts on, on digitalization if societies become more vulnerable and infrastructures become more vulnerable. And in the policy brief, you also talk about the negative interactions in climate mm -hmm. change and digitalization. C can you mention one or two to make it very concrete? Like where does the digital transition weigh in negatively on climate change? So I think the most prominent topic, what many people talk about or what comes first to our mind when we think about negative interactions is, of course, energy intensity of digital processes. So data processing centers need a lot of energy and if we all run our computers all the time if computers getting bigger and i mean they also get more efficient but we're using them all the time and we have many more digital devices than we had 10 years ago and one negative interaction is definitely the energy consumption whereby empirically it's not really clear to which extent energy consumption is really increasing, but we should definitely decrease it to make the transition to low carbon uh, easier. I mean, we know that there will be enough energy, but not in the short run. And therefore, anything that, that makes us consume more energy uh, should be avoided. And in things uh, like blockchain, eh? we all know Bitcoin, yeah. like it's a topic, like it's not a topic of this podcast, but uh, it's it's taking more and more energy to, to, to do the calculations. And so it's not a very sustainable currency in that sense. Yeah, it's, this is a very example. good example that you mentioned. I mean, there are also, um, in terms of when we think about, okay, how can we, we make both processes more aligned? There are blockchain technologies of how you develop the algorithms, how you set up the blockchain that you can save money much more a lot of energy compared for example to one of the worst cases the bitcoin um but um yeah as i mentioned it's a matter of how we shape it we have many design options for digital tools um but there's another big negative interaction that i just want to mention and that is resilience so when more and more processes become digital we become more dependent on these processes for example just think about digital payments so if every payment is made electronically, then you might have a big problem if there are any power cuts. And in times of climate change, we definitely need to think about extreme events that might happen more often. And this also matters for international supply chains. What we've just seen in the context of COVID, that um, digital products are very complex and very 
dependent on inputs coming from many different countries. And this is definitely something which we needs to be carefully monitored when we think about resilience. And yeah, this is, I think, the, another big thing we need to keep in mind. So we also have a lot of uh, promising and hopeful positive interaction between digitalization and climate change. We're, we're optimists after all, and we, we want to you know, fight climate change. What does the digital transition offer and opportunities uh, uh, in this fight against climate change? Uh, can you name also a few examples of that? Like what, what did you find? The positive interactions are, po as you would correctly say, it, uh, this is possibly the lever that we need to find to make both transitions well aligned. And I mean, very obvious examples are all these smart applications that facilitate the development of sustainable technology. For example, think about smart energy technologies or smart mobility concepts that build on a lot of data and enable us to interconnect different systems and to make these systems more efficient in use. And I mean, also for climate change adaptation, there's a big positive role of digitalization. So digitalization implies a lot of information, information availability. And if we want to develop, for example, national or European climate change adaptation plans, it is very important that we have granular regional data that we can use to develop these plans effectively. And I mean, digitalization does also allow us to share data faster, to share information faster. And for climate change adaptation, behavior is one of the, the most critical components of every adaptation concept. And therefore, making information widely and quickly available is is a very important area where digitalization can definitely help us. Policy Brief, you come up with 15 principles for policy design that reduce the negative interactions and that leverage actually the positive, uh, uh, yeah, the effectiveness of, of climate change uh, policy. We cannot talk about all of them. It's just too mm -hmm. long, but I want to pick out a few. And first of all, like uh, you just mentioned also the, the opportunity that data gives to be more targeted and to, to share information more and more, more, more quickly and more easily. You mentioned a couple of times in the recommendations, the green data spaces. That's a concept uh, that maybe not a lot of people know that we should explain it a little bit because it's it's something that helps if innovation can foster also the circular economy. Um, so, so could you tell a bit more of this green data spaces? What is actually the idea behind it and uh, what, what is happening? So in the digital economy, we have the big problem that data is very concentrated. Just think about Google, think about the big tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, They have a lot of data and the data allows these big tech companies to do a lot of develop applications, which are super sophisticated. But at the same time, this includes many other possible inventors to, to enter these fields of innovation and technological development. And the concept of data spaces have been put forward to break these data monopolies by making having transparent and clear rules, including data sharing obligations, which would mean, okay, Google must make certain types of data available if it's for the public good. And um, having clear, transparent rules of how the data can be accessed and by whom to enable other companies to, to innovate in these areas. And for the context of green technologies, we have a lot of information, for example, on mobility patterns of citizens, 
which is, for example, which the, the mobile phone companies have, or also banks have financial transaction data. And having this data could enable us to, to develop solutions, for example, smart mobility solutions, making use of this type of data, which is currently in private hands. And the concept or the idea of the data spaces in the context of the green transition has been put forward to focus on these types of data, which we need to make green innovation happening and to enable new participants to enter the field of, of green innovation. And it's not only, it's not so much about developing the breakthrough rocket science technologies. It's a lot about applications and digital services where data spaces can help. So this information will, will very likely not too much help in developing new engines or new batteries, but it will probably help a lot in developing smart applications of how we can use smart mobility on our mobile devices. Um, yeah, because we all know, as so if you're a bit also interested in living environmentally friendly, circular economy is very much a concept eh? and consuming less and, and finding new ways to work and uh, farm to fork. It's all these concepts that are floating around, but it's very hard to realize. And, and I think that's where also this, this data comes in hand. Like if you can make it accessible and also transparent and have nice tools and you can just order it maybe online, it becomes way more interesting and appealing. You want to combine also the the, the, the positive side effects for the, for the environment and the climate with also the usability. And I think that's where it becomes very interesting. Maybe to also pick into what, what you said about like uh, the, the, the data, big data monopolies that, that, that are there, the big tech firms. You also mentioned this data spaces when it comes to transparency of companies where we're talking about sustainable investment, uh, but also pollution data. There's a lot of things uh, that, that would open up uh, a box of Pandora maybe for these companies. Uh, there is a lot of intransparency as well, and there's a lot of interest in keeping things intransparent. So how do you see this power dimension? Because uh, because is Google going to give up his, his data? Are uh, companies like uh, like Shell or ExxonMobil wanting to become more transparent and share their data? How are we going to force them to do that? Oh, that is a very good question. I think I have to leave this question up to policymakers. We can only develop the solutions and propose ways of how we can implement these data spaces. But in the end, it's a big question of political will but also societal pressure to make these changes happening. And we know that divestment campaigns have been very successful in promoting sustainable investment. But yeah, in, in order to make sustainable investment being really sustainable, we need very clear uh, transparency with very clear rules about what data needs to be made available. And I mean, the data spaces that I mentioned in the context of, of sustainable investment, data sharing obligations are not only disclosing information, for example, of Google, but also if we have data and for ex there are some discussions about climate reporting standard standards of, uh, of companies. So it's not only about achieving sustainability, but it's also about financial stability as some of these companies with very big climate risks, transition risks and uh, physical risks to climate change. There are some discussions about making climate reporting mandatory and if the data becomes available or if this is mandatory, then of course the data must be made available. I mean, also in a question of what can policy or what can we do? I mean, 
as I said, it's a lot about political will to implement these policies and to force them. But it's also, one can also start with role models. And in sustainable finance, we have seen many role models, positive examples that lead the transition. And this is another thing, a smaller step that can be already taken. But I believe there will be no way around making climate reporting mandatory and then making the data available. I mean, it's also financial risks. It's not only climate risk. It's not only personal risk. It's uh, a systemic risk. No, and I think this is very much as not the discussion of today, but the stranded assets. Eh? So we have a lot of value in, in oil companies, but if they would pump up all the oil that they are worth, then we have a problem with the climate and still mm -hmm. like the stock markets are not always reflecting what climate policy is doing. And then maybe this transparency will, will help. And I think also the, the takeaway for me as well is uh, that the, the, the possibilities of this data and the possibilities of processing this data uh, is, a, is a big game changer. Before it was hard to make it transparent. Now you could, you could, there's no technical barrier anymore to give this information either to consumers or to investors or to policymakers of what is happening. You don't have to process that by hand. You can do that automatically and make it available. It's interesting to hear, like we are as FAPS, of course, a progressive think tank. We're not politicians ourselves, but we're trying to influence also the policymaking in Europe. And I think this is very much uh, the fight for climate is also in the digital uh, sphere. Another thing you mentioned as well before is the, the sustainable mobility. It's something that uh, that that is 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 developing uh, very quickly. We all know, of course, Uber. Uh, so that's a private company that that's been around. It's not nothing new. Providing an innovation as well, but also like with certain uh, detrimental effect to to social rights and and other things. But how do you see this to the future? Like because I know you work also what you said at uh, at the Alan Turing Institute on on AI and everything, and maybe self driving cars. How do you see this with all the data? And is there a possibility that the whole mobility, like our mobility will change with self-driving cars and stuff? How does policymaking go into that? Like this transition is happening. I know from a fact that here, the discussion in, in Brussels, when it comes about Fit for 55 and the whole discussion about stopping to make uh, combustion engines, that's a big discussion. But isn't there a change coming at uh, the self-driving technological process that's happening, a change coming that... The whole car industry has to change and the whole way we look at mobility will change because uh, there will be a car picking you up and leaving you behind without a driver. I'm just putting it this futuristic, mm -hmm. but you know, we don't know where we're going to yeah. be in five to 10 years, to be honest. So I believe there will be, and it's almost clear to anybody who's a bit involved in the research field, that there will be a big change in the car industry and the car industry knows it by themselves. But I mean, vested interests and stranded assets also sometimes make them tell different stories. But I think the, the message is nowadays clear that the car industry will radically change. But it's not only it's not only about self-driving cars, it's also about other concepts of mobility and facilitating the interoperation between different types and different modes of mobility. So jumping from the train in a self-driving cab would be would be a solution where we have the perfect chain of different modes of mobility and digitalization can certainly help. So when we think about policy and what's the role of policy in this um, in this context, I would always ask the question: Okay, where is the market not yet there? And for self-driving cars, I believe there is already a market and there are developers. I mean, there are certainly companies that will struggle, but it's in every technology transition, those who do not manage to keep pace, 
they lose, but um, that's a very natural principle of innovation. Um, but of course, policy should set the guidelines. I mean, labor standards are one example. You just mentioned Uber, and we don't have the problem with self-driving cars because there are no drivers, but um, there are stand standards that need to be met. And European policy can be very powerful in terms of yeah, setting not only the labor standards, but also technical standards. And we know that European regulation has often been very successful in harmonizing products and technical standards, which facilitates the transfer of goods across countries, but also the transfer of people. And um, for sustainable mobility, it would be a really great area where European policy can take action by in facilitating the interoperation between, for example, the railway system in France perfectly with the one in Germany. I mean, this is actually an example where it works well, but for Belgium, for the Thales, it doesn't work so well anymore. Um, but this is something where, where European policy can definitely set standards and facilitate the interoperation across borders, not only across different modes of mobility, but also across borders that wherever I arrive in whatever European city, that I can use the same app to, to access my mobility. On yeah, whatever. it's the whole question of interoperability is also a discussion, I think, also when it comes to the big, uh, big platforms and the way mm -hmm. we are using uh, uh, WhatsApp versus uh, Signal and, uh, and Twitter versus Facebook. So I think, and it also counts for mobility Yeah, you are there and you want to have a ride. Now you have to download every app and every app is getting mm -hmm. your data and it's all private companies. And, and what about alternatives or maybe even public alternatives? You mentioned also the, the trains. I think a big discussion is the, the, the cross-border international high-speed trains. I know there's a lot happening now. Mm -hmm. or maybe there is a lot talk about it, but I think there should be way, way, way more happening uh, in Europe on, on that. And, and that's then on the local level, the new mobility solutions to get like uh, the from place to place, uh, first from your house to the station, then from the station to hopefully from Brussels to Barcelona and high speed train. And then again, so I, I get I get what you're saying. So maybe there are there other things you want, want to give the, the audience these other things we didn't touch upon? Um, I think we have pretty well covered it. Um, I just know that there's one point talking about making digital policy more human-centric. Um, I think this, the same discussion does not really apply to climate change policy because we make climate change policy because we care about humans. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a rationale to care, to care about the climate if we would not care about the humans living on the planet. So this was uh, the FEPS talks uh, about digital policy and climate change. I really want to thank you for listening. And I also want to thank uh, Dr. Kirsten Hutte from the Alan Turning Institute and uh, the new Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford to, uh, to taking part. Uh, hopefully you will uh, find this interesting and uh, listen to more of the FEPS talks. Uh, we have a whole series uh, online, so keep, uh, keep listening and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.